0: Hey everyone, it's really good to be studying with you all again through the book of Jeremiah. Brian and I have been switching off every week. This week is my week and we've been trying to provide a study guide to give you the overview and some main points as you read and study along through this major prophet. If you aren't caught up yet, I encourage you, please feel free to go back and listen to the last few videos. We're about halfway through our study and moving fast. We're covering several chapters each week. We've got five chapters this week we're going to be covering. So this is a book I'll be honest I haven't spent a lot of time uh, before this quarter in the book of Jeremiah but I've really enjoyed digging into it and I hope that you felt the same way. Uh, I hope that that these classes have brought you some value and you've you've gained some things from your study. For some context for our study this week uh, let's remember that we're no longer under the reign of Josiah, but we are truly in the final years of, of Judah and, and the final years of Jerusalem. Most of these chapters stand alone and are often out of order chronologically. Um, so we'll jump from one king's reign to the other tonight, and we're going to kind of move back and forth a couple different places. Um, if you haven't had a chance yet, I would also encourage you to go take a minute and refresh yourselves with Second Kings chapters 24 and 25. And then also 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Those chapters cover the events uh, that occur during the time that Jeremiah is prophesying, and, and it gives some insight into the political landscape and what might be causing Jeremiah to need to deliver a particular message to a particular group of people like, like he does. This week, we're going to be looking at prophecies of Jeremiah that occur at various times during the reign of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And it is during these reigns that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are in the process of taking over, laying siege to Jerusalem, and have even taken a large wave of Jews into exile already. So some of the concepts we'll look at this week are different than what we've seen in the first half of our study. Um, Less focused on war, destruction, and calamity. We've, We've talked a lot about that so far. And it's still gonna be there, that's still in some of these chapters, but we're more focused on how both those who are in exile and those who are left behind should be conducting themselves. What, what should they be doing during this time? Uh, who should they be listening to for their advice? We're gonna talk a lot about that. And, and what should they be doing now that the things that have been prophesied are coming to pass? You know, th- things are starting to move, things that Jeremiah's been saying, things that have been prophesied for years are now starting to come to pass. So um, we're going to look at some of those things uh, tonight. Some common things, uh, some common themes for this week's study. Um, if I had to label uh, these five chapters and put a theme on it, I would say don't listen to false prophets. That's really what, what it gets down to. Kings, don't listen to false prophets. Priests, don't listen to false prophets. Gentile nations, don't listen to false prophets. Jewish, Jewish exiles, don't listen to false prophets. And so tonight's study, like I said, we're going to be covering chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, and 29. We've got five chapters tonight, a lot of material. I hope I can condense this uh, so it doesn't go too long. But as a brief overview, let's let's take a look. Chapter 25, we're going to see some specifics about the captivity being revealed. Uh, and, and we'll see some things about that. And then we're going to see God's cup of wrath being offered to... The Gentile nations—it's uh, this judgment isn't just happening on Judah. It's not just happening uh, for Israel. It is happening for all nations, and and they're all going to be involved. They're not going to be left out. Chapter twenty-six, we're going to see Jeremiah is arrested again, but he's luckier than some prophets during during this time period. Chapter twenty-seven. Uh, is, is a symbolic uh, prophecy like we've seen before where we're going to see the yoke of the king of Babylon versus the false prophets. And so we're going to see kind of these two different uh, groups here. And then chapter 28, we're going to see example of a false prophet by looking at Hananiah. And then in chapter 29, we're going to, see, uh, to look at letters to the exiles. You know, there are now 10,000 Jewish exiles in, in Babylon, and God has a message for them as well. And so Jeremiah writes letters to them, so we're going to take a look at that when we get to chapter 29. So let's go ahead and kick things off, jump straight into chapter 25. Um, where we see the captivity specifics are revealed, and we're going to look at God's cup of wrath for Gentile nations. So if we're thinking about timing for this chapter, uh, we're told that it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim's 11-year reign, Um, so he's not quite halfway through with his reign yet, uh, probably around 605 B.C., um, and we're about 19 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, so we're, we're getting close. It's crunch time now. Um, Just a quick recap, Jehoiakim, he's 29 years old at this time. He was actually set up as king by the Pharaoh in Egypt uh, to replace his brother, who the Pharaoh had killed. And he's a very wicked king. He's responsible for shedding a lot of innocent blood, including many prophets of God. And we're going to see some of that tonight. So the, the first section we come to in the first seven verses... Uh, It's a little ironic because, you know, I mentioned our theme earlier, don't listen to false prophets. Well, it's ironic because our first chapter starts out with a condemnation on the people of Judah for not listening to God's true prophets. So they weren't listening to God's prophets. They were listening to the false prophets. Um, Whether it was Jeremiah or any of the others that God had sent, they were not listening to the true prophets. And Jeremiah explains in these first seven verses that he's been prophesying for 23 years and he's now halfway through his ministry, but they haven't listened. And we've seen that before. We've seen how they've responded. God has sent all his servants and prophets again and again, it's mentioned. But they haven't listened, nor they've inclined their ear to hear. And what has that message been? Well, we, we, we know what God has sent. We, if you've been studying with us, you, you know it. Um, it's been consistent. All of God's prophets were preaching the same thing. And that thing boiled down as repentance. Turn now from your evil ways and deeds. Do not serve or worship other gods. Do not provoke the Lord to anger uh, with the work of your hands. If you do all of that, if you turn back, you can stay in your land forever and ever and the Lord will not harm you. But they haven't listened. They have provoked the Lord to anger with the work of their own hands. And despite 23 years of work from Jeremiah, and remember we've talked about his perseverance, his patience, his courage, we've talked about all those things. And despite all of that work, and despite God doing everything he can to send messengers and and messages in different ways, they didn't respond. So then we get to verses 8 through 14, and it's going to describe what is going to happen. Because they didn't listen, this is what's going to happen in more detail. And we learn who the families of the north are. You know, several times in this book, we've seen uh, descriptions of destruction and, and the judgment that's coming, and it's described as coming from the north. Well, now we learn that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will be the servant God uses to fulfill his judgment. Against this land, Judah, and against all the nations around it, God will use Nebuchadnezzar to completely destroy them, making them an everlasting desolation. They won't rise again. Nebuchadnezzar is described here in verse 9 as God's servant. Now, he's not necessarily willingly obedient to him, but he's useful nonetheless. The disobedient nation described in the first seven verses here, uh, they wouldn't listen to God's prophetic servants that he'd been sending. They wouldn't listen to the servants that God had been sending. So they're going to have to deal with a different kind of servant now. Uh, And this servant isn't necessarily motivated by serving God and making him happy. He's He's motivated by his own selfish desires and ambitions. Uh, he wants to build his own empire. And in turn, once he's completed God's will, he's going to incur the guilt that ha- that has to be punished by the Lord for that fact. And it's an interesting look here at God's providence and how he works and, and how he, he raises up nations and, and uses people um, to fulfill his will. And here... His delivery of judgment uses an individual sin, sinful desire and personal ambition. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's bent on taking over the world, and he's going through. And basically what's going to happen is God's going to let him. God's just going to let him take, take over his people. And that's how he's going to deliver his judgment. But then he's going to turn around and punish the servant. For the iniquity that he's committed against God's people, uh, which, which kind of you know, it, it kind of circular thinking there. But we see that that is how God uses uh, uses kings and, and nations for his will. And we see the same thing with both Cyrus and Pharaoh. You know, Romans chapter 9 verse 17, uh, it says, uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and to, and to that my name Uh, and to that my name be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So we know Pharaoh was raised up for a specific purpose, and we know that Cyrus was was prophesied ahead of time that he was going to do all that God desired. Um, God raises up unlikely servants to fulfill his will so that his power and his name would be known and that his will will be done. Now, we go on in this section here, uh, and we see that all the sounds of life You know, we're continuing on looking at at this destruction that's going to happen. All sounds of life and a once vibrant community, voice of joy, gladness, the brides, the millstones, all of that's going to be silenced and removed. And it's going to leave behind desolation and horror. And then in verse 11, it's revealed that all of this is going to last for 70 years. They're going to serve Nebuchadnezzar for that long, 70 years. Now, you may ask, why 70? Um... If you look at Psalm 90, verse 10, it says that as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. 70 years is a lifetime, long enough to wipe out this evil generation and for a new generation to be able to return and rebuild. Um, And I'm, I'm reminded of the length of time God led His people when they came out of Egypt in the wilderness and they were led for 40 years and we're told that that was long enough for every person who didn't have faith in the Lord to it was long enough for them to die uh, before they entered the promised land and so we see that it's a similar concept here that God is God is going to keep them captive until uh, until all all of those who are unfaithful are gone and it's a new generation now we also see here that Babylon will not remain unpunished for their actions, like we mentioned. Once the 70 years have been completed, God is going to punish Nebuchadnezzar and the nation, making it an everlasting desolation as well, again. So it's never going to rise again. It's going to be everlasting. Now we're going to see here, the, the rest of this chapter, Judah and Babylon aren't the only nations that are going to be punished here and are going to receive God's wrath. But the rest of this chapter looks at many other nations and kings that are going to receive this judgment as well. And when you look at Jeremiah's ministry, actually a pretty good percentage of it is focused on God's judgment on the surrounding Gentile nations. Uh, Specifically, I'm thinking later in the book, chapters 46 through 51, when we get there, um, go into detail about some of these nations and the judgments that that are going to, to come to them and i'm reminded of jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10 when when jeremiah was called and we've gone back to these verses a lot but this is just an example of how he's fulfilling his calling but in verse 10 it said jeremiah was appointed over nations and kingdoms and he was to pluck up and break down destroy overthrow build and plant right that was part of his mission and we're seeing that come out here in chapter 25 where he is he he's he's going to the nations and kingdoms, and he's he's delivering those messages. And what he does with the rest of this chapter is really he provides a list of 18 or so different nations that are all going to drink from God's cup of wrath here. And, you know, I don't think, you know, I, we we don't see Jeremiah literally taking a cup from God and going to each king and nation and making them drink out of this cup, but this idea is a fairly common idea in scripture that we see. Um, it's mentioned in several books, actually, but it, it uses a figurative illustration when God is about to unleash judgment and uh, punishment on a nation. We see this idea of drinking the cup of God's wrath. And if you think about it, I, when I was reading through it, the, this image came to my mind that, you know, this cup of wrath, it could be thought of as a cup, cup of alcohol, if you will. And it... it it's kind of inappropriate uh, as a description of God's wrath uh, if you think about Proverbs chapter 23, verse uh, 29 through 35, uh, where it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like the one who lies down on the top of a mass. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Woe, sorrow, b- bites like a serpent, stings like a viper. You know, seeing strange things, not aware of surroundings, confused, helpless, bitterness. That's quite the state to be in, drinking from a cup of, of mixed, mixed wine uh, or wine here. Um, that's what it's like to drink from the cup of God's wrath, to be on the receiving end of God's wrath, is is being confused, helpless, this bitterness and, and just this distress. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, interesting comparison when, when I was reading through that. Now we're not going to take the time to go into detail with each of these nations listed here. Uh, we'll probably take a little time later on in, in the chapters when, when we run into these again. But just to run through them here, uh, Jerusalem and Judah is mentioned. Egypt, the Philistine cities, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Zidon, the islands and the city, uh, the islands in the sea. I'm sorry, Dudan, uh, uh Buzz, kings of. Arabia, the foreign people in the desert, Zimri, Elam, Medes, and last but not least, Shishak, which is a term used to describe Babylon and other places in Scripture. And so it's kind of a code word, if you will, uh, to talk about Babylon here. And so all of these nations are mentioned here that they are going to receive God's judgment. And I couldn't help but think of Amos chapter 1, when he goes through and announces God's judgment on all the surrounding nations to Israel and Judah, 100 to 200 years earlier well now we see jeremiah again is is approaching many of these same same nations saying that they are going to uh, they're not going to be free from punishment they're going to receive god's wrath in the same way that judah and the same way that babylon is and then the remainder of the chapter jeremiah is instructed to kind of poetically describe what this destruction will be like and he compares the lord to the to the roaring lion that we've seen other prophets use uh, where it's striking fear in the heart of its prey so one application from, from chapter 25 here that I thought was interesting is uh, the specific details that it mentions in this prophecy. You know, we've got Nebuchadnezzar, we've got Babylon, 70 years. These are very specific details that can and, and have been verified. And when you think about when prophecy is fulfilled, when, it, when, it, when these specific details are found to be true, it corroborates the claim that the Bible is inspired. And so the identification of Babylon, of Nebuchadnezzar and the length of time, 70 years in captivity. These are all incredible claims that that no one really could know except for God. These are bold claims for anyone to make. And if they're found to be false, then Jeremiah's entire message is worthless. God's word doesn't hold the authority and weight it would otherwise if these claims are false. But if they're found to be true, it adds credible evidence uh, to support the Bible's claims. And, you know, things like this are... Incredibly encouraging and faith building for me, I know, uh, to see God's foreknowledge and how He prophesies things years, decades, sometimes even centuries before it, they're actually confirmed. Um, you know, especially when you think about today, we've got meteorologists that can't even tell us if it's going to rain this afternoon or not. Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty incredible what God can do and what has done in the Bible that, that proves and, and can give us faith there. This chapter also presents a good contrast for us, before we move on, um, between the Lord's ability to know what will happen, the Lord's ability to control the leaders of the nations, the Lord's might and power that he has, and the world's complete lack of control over what is important. Um, Jehovah, who is truly the king of kings, he's using the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar as an unwitting, unwilling servant. You can't help but acknowledge his authority and power and foreknowledge when reading passages like this. And at the same time, you look at the nations that are mentioned here, some great nations, and we see how the kingdoms of earth pass away. Each one fleeting. One rises and one falls. The things here on earth are not permanent. They're not ours to control. They're not ours to, you know, we we may get temporary gain, we may reach world domination, physical pleasures, whatever it is. But ultimately, it's God's judgment that everyone on earth must submit to and it's God's will that will be done no matter how powerful we think we are and so that that's another takeaway we can get from this chapter so let's move on to chapter 26 we see that Jeremiah is arrested here and he's luckier than some prophets if we look at the timing we're now in the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign we're not sure if it's earlier than last chapter or not chapter 25 we were in his fourth year the this this doesn't specify but the specifics don't really matter. What does matter here is remember Jehoiakim's character. He's wicked. Brian referenced his treatment of prophets last week in his class. Many didn't escape his wrath like Jeremiah has been able to do up till now. And so, we see in the first seven verses of this chapter that Jeremiah is at the temple again. He's addressing those who have come to worship, much like chapter 7 that we saw before. In fact, this is the third time we've seen him at the temple. Uh, it's being recorded to us that he's speaking at the temple. We've seen chapter 7, chapter 19, a couple of weeks ago where he was arrested, beaten, and put into stocks for the things he preached, and now. It's probably safe to assume that jeremiah was at the temple pretty frequently that would be my guess Um, although the these are the only three times we've had recorded up till now but despite the negative treatment that he's received he still persevered and continues to do god's will he's not afraid and he knows god is with him he keeps going to the temple and he's instructed here to not omit a single word and I thought that was an interesting uh, emphasis that, that God places on Jeremiah here, and it stood out to me while I was reading. And again, I was reminded of Jeremiah's original call in, in chapter 1. All that I command you, you shall speak. And maybe this is God's way of pumping Jeremiah up and, and reminding him of his purpose, of his goal, and that he's the importance of what he's about to go do. But I also started to think about how important it really is to have all of God's words, You know, in Acts chapter 20, Paul spoke to those in Ephesus and made a point to tell them that he spoke the whole counsel of God to them. And I'm sure it would have been tempting for Jeremiah to water down his preaching and to maybe leave some of the words that he knew was going to get him thrown in in prison or in the stocks uh, out of his his lesson, you know. Um, But for the people at the temple, it was vital that they hear every word of God. It was life or death. I mean, we're, we're down less than 20 years away from Jerusalem being destroyed. They needed to hear God's words right now. Uh, because as God said in verse three, maybe, perhaps they'll listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil deeds. God's still holding out hope. Jeremiah is still holding out hope that maybe they could hear these words and they'll act on it. They'll repent and end the need for this destruction and death. They needed to hear every word of God. They needed to hear about repentance, about judgment, about the encouragement and hope that was to come. And it's the same for us. We need to hear the whole word of God. We need to not water down the truth. We need to to read and study and have the whole word of God. And the message here that Jeremiah was not to admit was very similar to other he's delivered. Uh, especially his first time in the temple, chapter seven, is very similar to that first sermon, where basically he said, "You need to repent, or you're going to end up like Shiloh." And so that's the message he he delivered here. Then now we go to the second section here, verses eight through 19, and we see that Jeremiah was arrested and he goes through a trial. And now, as you as we read through this and as you look look at this, I want you to consider how closely these resemble other. Arrests and trials that we have recorded in the scriptures, uh, specifically thinking of Jesus and Stephen and the apostles and Paul. I made a comparison in my last class looking at at some of those. But there's a lot of comparisons here, a lot of uh, consistency. At first, when people heard this message that Jeremiah spoke, that he wanted them to repent, they wanted to kill him. They riled up a mob that wanted to see him dead. And I can already think of a couple of these other accounts where that happened, where they wanted to see uh, Jesus or Stephen dead, right? They wanted to see them dead. So this mob comes up, and they're they're yelling, uh, you know, a death sentence for this man because he's prophesied against the city. There's this massive mob. So... First, we see the mob who wants to kill them. Second, we see these officials come in, and they want to—you know—they're not as hot-headed as the violent mob. They—they they weren't there, um, and they halt the halt the proceedings, and they listen to both sides, the accuser, the, the accusers, and then the defense. So they hear that this man is prophesied against the city, and that he must be put to death, and then they. Listen to Jeremiah's defense. And Jeremiah says, hey, I was sent by God. I've spoken the words God has told me to, and now's the chance to repent and obey so the Lord will change uh, change his mind. Again, seeing similarities to Jesus and Paul and some of the defenses that that were given in their trials. Um, Then third here, another another similarity, there are occasionally reasonable judges that speak up. Uh, In our examples, think Pilate, who says, I find no guilt in this man. Or King Agrippa, who's almost persuaded to become a Christian. Um, in this case, there's a really big similarity to Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, who logically speaks up uh, with, with Peter and John there, realizing what it means if this person is truly from God, what is going to happen politically? What is going to happen logically here? And, and someone speaks up here on Jeremiah's behalf, and, and the officials decide that Jeremiah doesn't need to be put to death. Because his message is consistent with that of Micah, who in the days of Hezekiah about a hundred years earlier, uh, he was spared. Hezekiah didn't kill Micah uh, for preaching the same things. But instead, Hezekiah turned to God, feared him, and the Lord changed his mind about plowing Zion as a field at that time. And so these officials who spoke up, they admitted that, okay, they were committing a great evil against themselves if they were going to put Jeremiah to death, if they were to kill this prophet of God now that's hopeful, now this is the response Jeremiah and the Lord would have wanted, right except it was more of a logical response I think than an actual conviction it, we don't really see anything actually change in the people who were present yes they spared Jeremiah's life but it was more of a decision that I think was reached with their head logically than true repentance with their heart and I think that, that was, that's what we see here now, verses 20 through 24 were introduced to uh, another another man, another prophet, who's been prophesying in the name of God, and his words have been consistent with the words of Jeremiah. And it, th- this section almost reads like a side note or footnote to what is happening with Jeremiah's trial. And it's an example of when the people actually went through with committing a great evil and killing one of God's God's prophets. So what we have here, Jehoiakim and his men chased Uriah to kill him once hearing his message from the Lord. Again, the same things that, that Jeremiah had been saying. Uriah flees to Egypt. They go after him, retrieve him, and bring him back only to kill him and bury him with the commoners in the Kidron Valley. And despite how bad Jeremiah has been treated up till now, he's not suffered Uriah's fate yet. He, he, he has not been killed for what, what he's done. He, he's been spared. Uh, no doubt God's hand has been in that. But we see that other prophets have not fared as well. And Jeremiah is, is lucky that in this time where Jehoiakim is actively killing prophets of God, he has been able to to escape and then at the end of this chapter verse 24. We see that a man uh, hikam uh, I don't know if that's how you say that protected Jeremiah and through his influence was able to spare Jeremiah's life So somehow some way he was able to talk the people into uh, Sparing Jeremiah's life now. I don't know if he's the initial one who spoke up We don't really know much about this man Um, He obviously had some major influence if he was able to get Jeremiah out of this situation. We do see Ahikam mentioned in another interaction with Jeremiah later in the book. Uh, I believe it's around chapter 40 or so. Um, And then again in 2 Kings chapter 25, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Ahikam's son, Gedaliah governor over the land of Judah, which I thought was kind of an interesting connection. So obviously his family was pretty well connected and respected if Nebuchadnezzar put him in that position. Um, and perhaps he's one who is faithful to God, and maybe he had God's favor. You know, we don't know a lot about him, but all we know is kind of the circumstances there. One one thing to consider from this chapter is, is about this guy Ahikam and how he used his influence to do what he could do in service to God. He obviously had great influence. He had great some some type of power in the community there. And I think it's something to think about for each one of us. We all have influence somewhere. We all have influence in some circles. Maybe it's at work, uh, in our community, in government, in school, wherever it is. If you have influence in a group or community, look for ways to use it for the advantage of God's kingdom, like, like Ahikam did. Maybe it's in the form of hospitality. Maybe it's uh, community connections and networking. Maybe it's financial resources. You know, it reminded me of Esther, uh, someone who had unusual access and influence and was able to use it for God's people. Just kind of a thought that stood out to me while I was reading that and, and seeing what Ahikam does for, for Jeremiah here. Um, may, maybe that's something we can take away from this and, and learn to look for opportunities like that. Chapter 27, uh, let's go ahead and move on there. Uh, now we're in the beginning of Zedekiah's reign, uh, the, last, the last king here. Uh, some translations actually sign this chapter to be in Jehoiakim's reign, um, but I was, re- I was doing some reading on that, and many scholars now believe that there's a scribal error, uh, transcription error there somewhere. And because of the context of the chapter, specifically verses 12 through 15, where he's addressing Zedekiah, that Zedekiah is actually the current king of Judah here, and it was just a, a translation error. So for some context on this, and for the next few chapters, we're getting into this section where there seems to be a major problem in Judah and the surrounding nations right now. Uh, you know, there, there are people in exile. I mean, there's lots of problems in Judah, but we're seeing this, this problem where the prophets and the, the, the diviners and, and the seers and others are, are, they're prophesying messages of false hope. And that, those messages of false hope are influencing leaders of these nations to take action into their own hands instead of listening to God. They are believing that they are going to be able to resist Babylon's power and all will return to normal in in about two years. And that directly contradicts God and Jeremiah's message of seven years. And so we see this problem going on and Jeremiah starts to address this problem in, in this and the following chapters. But what we see this start out with, uh, in the beginning of chapter 27, in the first 11 verses, uh, Jeremiah performs another symbolic message. We've seen this time and time again. This time, though, he's being instructed to put on bonds and a yoke around his neck and to go go, go around to different groups of people with a message from God, with this big yoke around his neck. And so we see in the first 11 verses here, he's sent to the foreign ambassadors of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and, and Sidon. These nations were working hard to convince Zedekiah to join them in organizing a coalition that was going to rebel, resist, and, and defeat Babylon. And so God's message to these nations was pretty simple. He said, look, God is king of kings, able to raise up any nation or king that he wishes especially since he created it all, which it kind of reminded me of the clay and the potter uh, uh, illustration we had a, a couple weeks ago. And he said, any attempt to go against the servant that God has chosen to carry out his His judgment, any attempt is going to fail. So if you try to go against Babylon, if you try to go against Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to fail because I'm behind it and it's my will. So instead of rise up against God's chosen servant, they are expected to submit themselves to Nebuchadnezzar, putting their neck in Babylon's yoke. Those who submit to the yoke, those who put uh, willingly put that on their neck, God will allow to remain in their land. Those that reject it will be punished by sword, famine, and pestilence. And he explains to them that those who are telling them that they will not have to serve the kingdom of Babylon, they're lying to them, and they haven't been sent by the Lord. He says, do not listen to them. Now, this is a simple message, but it's not popular. And you can understand why. Submit to your captors. Submit to the See that big nation that's going to come take you over? Submit to them. The one who's come and taken away 10,000 of your loved ones and mighty men already? Submit to them. Uh, don't take revenge. There's no hope. Don't fight for your freedom. Give up and submit. And that's God's will. And that, that can't be a very popular message. And if you go and read Second Kings chapter 24, it's interesting to see this play out. Uh, you see Nebuchadnezzar allows Jehoiakim to serve him for three years. Jehoiakim rebels. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem and he takes the 10,000 into exile. Had there been no rebellion by Jehoiakim, that outcome might have looked a little bit different. And, and it's interesting here seeing uh, that they were warned ahead of time uh, that that could happen. Verses 12 through 15, now Jeremiah sent to Zedekiah, the king, with the same message. And he's got the yoke still on his neck. And and remember, Zedekiah is a weak leader. He's actually Nebuchadnezzar's uncle who was propped up to be king by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah asks him an important question. He says, why will you and your people die? Why are you letting this happen? It's needless. And he goes on, here is what you do instead of rebelling. Don't listen to what those other prophets are telling you don't listen to what the false prophets are telling you they're saying you will not serve the king of babylon you're not gonna you're not gonna have to submit to him they're lying to you god has sent them they're falsely using my name and it's going to lead you and your people to to their death do not listen to them so he's told he's told the other nations do not listen to these prophets he's told zedekiah do not listen to these prophets if you remember last week in Brian's class, uh, around chapter 23, he described how bad this false prophet problem is getting, and, and, and it started, you know, so it was starting to get bad there. And, and we, we've, we've talked about it throughout this whole book, that there's been this lingering idea where the prophets are just saying, oh, peace, peace, there, nothing bad is going to happen here. Well, they're going to the leaders of nations and saying that they're from God, directly contradicting God's own prophets. And they're causing some of these leaders to make some pretty... Radical and rebellious decisions to go against Babylon. And, and what God is saying is it's not going to end well if you go against me. Verses 16 through 22, Jeremiah goes to the priest now and warns them. To so the priest, he, he warns them that the prophets are lying to them. Again, same message. Telling them, although this time what they're telling them is different. The prophets are telling the priest that the holy vessels that were taken from the temple, they're going to be returned shortly. They're going to be returned from Babylon. And what Jeremiah is saying is, do not listen to those prophets. Those vessels will be in Babylon until God decides to bring them back, which he said is going to be 70 years. Again, not a popular message. Those priests did not want to hear that. But Jeremiah delivered the message. It's just as important today who we listen to and thinking about these false prophets versus Jeremiah and God's true prophets. You know, in Jeremiah's day, these prophets were claiming to be from God, saying nothing bad's gonna happen. Peace, peace. You You won't have to serve Babylon. Those stolen vessels, they're gonna be returned very soon. All these things that the people wanted to hear and believe. But the true prophets had a different message. It wasn't what the people wanted to hear, but instead, their message was repent, turn back to God. Don't listen to the false prophets. Repent and turn back to God over and over and over and over. What about today? Think about today. What? It's just as important who we listen to today, isn't it? It's just as important what we read, what we scroll through, what, what videos we watch, what, what we take in. False teachers and those in the world preach that no change is needed. We can come as we are. We can just accept Jesus in our heart. We don't need to change anything about what we're doing. You know, we're, we're talked about, we're told about the prosperity gospel and, you know, th- other things that we wanna hear. You know, e- Even atheists, there is no God. Do whatever you want. That, th- that, That's a popular false false teaching. Do what makes you happy. You gotta be yourself. You, you do you, right? We, we hear these things all the time. We see these things. Th- those are things we're confronted with, but what do true teachers of God need to be doing? True teachers of God preach something completely different. They preach all of God's words, not omitting anything. And they preach judgment, justice, righteousness, love. They preach about heaven and hell. They preach repentance, submission, sacrifice, service, generosity, and the list could just go on. That's not necessarily what people want to hear, though, but the true word of God. And I think it's important for us to be able to tell the difference between what we want to hear and what is the true word of God. Now we get to chapter 28. Uh, This is kind of a continuation from last chapter. Uh, In chapter 28, after Jeremiah has warned the foreign ambassadors, the king and the priests of these false prophets, one of those false prophets decides to confront Jeremiah in front of everyone in the temple, his name's Hananiah. And so in verses one through four, Hananiah starts by approaching Jeremiah there in the temple. Uh, Jeremiah's still got his yoke on his neck. He's he's been preaching in the temple. And he says, beginning of verse 2 here, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. If you didn't know better, if you hadn't been reading up until now and just heard that, Hanani sounds pretty authoritative and and official with what he said. I mean, he said, declares the Lord. He he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Uh, It almost sounds like the tone and wording Jeremiah might use. Uh, He invokes the name of God and his message is a message of hope, not destruction. That's a positive thing. I I like Hanani. I like what he's saying. In two years, all the vessels will return to the temple, the king, and all the exiles will return. Well, two years isn't that bad. We can, we can make this, right? Verses 5 through 11, Jeremiah responds, and then Hananiah responds back. Jeremiah responds to him and starts with an enthusiastic amen. May the Lord do so, please. And I'm sure Jeremiah wished that that was the case. Two years, that would be fantastic. But he knows better. He knows what God has actually said. He points out to Hananiah and everybody else who is listening there that only only time will reveal what God has actually said. He points out to Hananiah that only time will reveal which one of them was truly from God. And Jeremiah has time on his side. He points out the prophets from ancient times, they've prophesied against nations and uh, they've talked about war and calamity and pestilence. The ancient prophets of God have all talked about this. That is God's consistent message, that if you turn from God and you turn your back to him and sin, you're going to reap judgment. And Jeremiah's message is in alignment with that. And the things Jeremiah has said are even starting to come to pass now, with some of them being taken to exile and things. So they're starting to see some proof from that. Hananiah here is a newcomer with a message of hope and a short time in exile which isn't consistent with all of the other prophets of God and the messages that they've delivered. And when the words of the prophets come to pass, that is when the prophet will be known as truly from God. And Jeremiah is trying to get across this point that these things that Hananiah is saying, they haven't been proven. They're not going to come to pass. And the only way we're going to know is if they do come to pass. This new message of peace has to be proved before he should be believed. Now, Hananiah decides to double down on his original false prophecy here. He steps up, he takes the yoke off Jeremiah's neck and breaks it. He He gives a visual show to breaking the yoke of Babylon, right? And on top of that, he goes even further than his first prophecy. He says, in two years, I'll break the yoke from the neck of all nations, not just Judah as before. And so he doubles down on that. Now, Verses 12 through 17, we see Jeremiah steps away, and then he's given a response by the Lord, so so he goes back to Hananiah, and this time the response is a harsher response, that the wooden yoke that you broke is now replaced with an iron yoke, indestructible, strong. God has put a yoke on the nation for them to serve Nebuchadnezzar. They will serve him. God will see to it that they serve him, even the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah boldly calls out Hananiah in front of everyone. And he says, "As for you, Hananiah, God has not sent you. You have made these people believe your lies, and I will remove you from the face of the earth. And this very year, you are going to die." And in verse 17, instead of being right and having everything return in two years, Hananiah died in two months, confirming Jeremiah's message, giving his message more weight, and proving Hananiah's false. One of the things I thought interesting about about uh, chapter 28 here. Uh, was the difference of demeanor between God's servant, Jeremiah, and the false prophet, Hananiah. And you can kind of see two different approaches here and how they worked. Hananiah made a huge show about everything he did, right? He confronted Jeremiah in front of everyone, making a bold declaration directly contradicting Jeremiah. Uh, And when challenged by Jeremiah, then he went over the top with a huge dramatic display breaking the yoke. And then rashly doubling down on his original prediction. And frankly, sounds a bit obnoxious to, to me when I, when I read through that. But look how Jeremiah responds here. Verse 5, he spoke what he had to say. And verse 11, he went on his way when he was done. And then he did not speak or act without revelation or authorization from God. Once word did come from God, he calmly approaches Hananiah again and delivers that message. Thus says the Lord thought this is a good example uh, that each one of us could look at of how we should conduct ourselves with those who may be a bit challenging or even completely false in the world maybe some that we're in conversation with and debate with maybe we're studying the bible with uh, maybe we're trying to evangelize You know, dealing calmly with others, speaking where God speaks, not letting emotion take over, not doing things for show. All of these things can make a big impression on others, and we see that in Jeremiah. Now, that brings us to our last chapter this week, uh, chapter 29, and we see this, this idea of letters to the exiles. This is a little different than our other messages from Jeremiah. So far, we've seen public speeches, private conversations, symbolic illustrations and actions. And now we see Jeremiah writing letters to those Jews who were in exile. Again, going back to 2 Kings 24, verse 14, we know that this time Nebuchadnezzar had already taken captains, mighty men of valor, and 10,000 exiles, right? He's already taken them. That places us somewhere in, in, the, in, in the realm of 597 uh, BC, about 10 years before the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, give or take. Um, and so the tone here changes, even from the previous chapters that we just read. The audience here is already in exile. These are the good figs that Brian talked about uh, from chapter 24, the good Jewish people who God sent into captivity. The message isn't about destruction and calamity here. Instead, it's more of a positive tone. It's encouraging restoration. It's encouraging hope. It's uh, peace, uh, rebuilding, right? All of, all of these ideas are contained in this letter. And it has some warnings about some of these pressing issues that we've talked about with the false prophets. So in this letter, the first part of this letter, the first point he makes is that Jer- Jeremiah says that they should peacefully submit and build their life there in captivity. He says you need to build houses and live. You need to plant gardens and eat. Take wives, become parents, multiply, right? Not only that, but you're to seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. And I thought that was really interesting. How hard would that have been to hear if you're the exiles? That they had just experienced being taken captive, witnessed their entire family and friends killed, and just these mighty men of valor and 10,000 captives. How do you seek welfare for the people who did those things? that would be really tough. And and that that would be tough to do. That would be tough to pray to God on that city's behalf. But God said, it's in that city's welfare that you're going to find your welfare. And I think that's a really interesting point we'll talk about in a minute. One commentator I read gave some insight into why it might be so difficult to settle down and live their lives and why jeremiah needed to emphasize this so apparently there's some archaeological evidence that shows that the jewish exiles were most likely settled along some broken canals in the middle of some swamplands there in babylon and and it it was suggested that it would have had lots of mosquitoes disease malaria possibly um, extremely humid And even reaching temperatures of 120 degrees in the summer. Not exactly prime farming land that they're used to back in Judah. And not exactly a place you'd want to settle down and plant roots in. You'd probably want to just wait it out and wait till you can go back home. But these were God's instructions to them that you need to build your houses, plant your gardens, take your wives, multiply, and and pray for the welfare of the city. Secondly, in in this letter, Jeremiah gives them the same warning and message he gave in previous chapters about false prophets. He said, there are false prophets who are saying the same things as Hananiah. It's only going to be two years. Don't worry about it. You're going to be there. You're going to go home. Everything's going to be fine. And, you know, as I was reading this, I started to feel really bad for Ezekiel, who was having to deliver God's message in the middle of this captivity with all of these false prophets around saying, hey, it's just two years. Don't worry, guys. No big deal. We're going to go back home. Uh, that would be tough for ezekiel to have to have to do uh, but jeremiah warns against these prophets god has not sent them they prophesied falsely when 70 years is completed god will bring you back not to and he says god knows the plan he has for for them in verse 11 his plan includes welfare not calamity a future of hope um, both immediate hope and in in you know messianic sense i think you could probably probably say that as well this future hope but he he says, I know, I, I've got a plan for you. It's going to be 70 years. Don't listen to the false prophets who say something different. Now, the third point that he makes here in this letter is is that they need to be thankful that they're in exile where they are. Their brothers in Jerusalem are going to get it far worse. They're going to get the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. Those who remain in Jerusalem, those are the rotten figs from chapter 24 who will be destroyed. And then fourth year, jeremiah calls out two of these false prophets who who are there in babylon and he calls them out ahab and zedekiah i don't know if there's any correlation with those names and the, and the names of the kings we're familiar with uh, or not but th- regardless they are prophesying falsely in the lord's name in babylon and god is going to make an example out of them and he's going to and nebuchadnezzar is going to kill them before their eyes and god's going to allow that to happen and Basically, they're going to become household names and cautionary tales to the exiles there. They're going to become a warning to not listen to the false prophets because remember what happened to Ahab and Zedekiah. They didn't listen. They were were preaching falsely, and look what happened to them. Then, in verses 24 through 32, at the end of this chapter, he responds to another false prophet in Babylon, uh, Shemiah. This prophet has apparently been sending letters back and forth between exile from Babylon to Jerusalem. Uh, and he's been calling on the leaders there to arrest Jeremiah. He's been calling on the leaders in Jerusalem to arrest Jeremiah and put him in, in the stocks for the things he's writing to them. He's saying in verse 27, he says, Now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah who prophesies to you? For he is sent to us in Babylon saying, The exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Is that something that he should be telling us if we're only going to be here two years? Well, God's response to Shemaiah's letter was to make Shemaiah an example just like Ahab and Zedekiah there because he's made them believe a lie. He's tried to incite a rebellion against God and his prophet. And Shemaiah would not experience the good that God had planned. And so instead of him and his entire family enjoying God's blessings and enjoying uh, the... the uh, the blessings of of being there in exile and and living their life instead him and his entire family would be eliminated they would not experience returning back to Judah and Jerusalem so as we wrap up our study this week I'll share with you one more thing that jumped out to me during during my reading and that's here in chapter 29 I thought it was just another interesting thought uh, application point here but it's about God's expectation of his people in foreign lands It struck me that what God expected of his exiles in Babylon were not very different than what he expects of us as we live in the world today. And maybe it's even more applicable to our current situation that we're in today with some of the struggles we're having right now. Think about with the Jewish exiles, you know, we aren't citizens here. They weren't citizens in Babylon. We're not citizens here. According to Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We are in a foreign land right now. We are in the world. And God instructed his Jewish exiles that while they were in captivity in a foreign land, they were to peacefully submit to the foreign government. They were to build houses, plant gardens, multiply, seek the welfare of the city, pray on their behalf, because in the city's welfare, they would find their own welfare. They were to establish themselves, settle down, and live their lives peacefully. And for us, when we look at the scriptures, it's biblical for us to actively participate in and seek the welfare of the foreign land we are in, living in in the same way those Jewish exiles were, we can, and and I think we're expected, to participate in the community. And we're not to, to hold ourselves off and become hermits or anything like that. Even if our values, our morals, our politics, our religion is significantly different than the citizens of that land, we still are in that land. We still need to... Look out for the welfare of that land. You know, historically, we know that the Jewish exiles uh, actually flourished and did really well in captivity. In fact, most of God's people, when they go to a foreign land, whether they're in captivity or not, they do really well. Think, think about uh, 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 Joseph and, and Moses and, and Esther and, and Daniel and all these people who are in a foreign land. Think about how well they did. uh You know, they they were all well-respected. They gained wealth and even rose to leadership positions. Uh, You know, no doubt God's hand was in that. But just think about how well-respected God's people were when they were in a foreign land. For us, we need to be active in our communities. We need to be like the light on the hill uh, described in Matthew chapter 5. We are to be in the world, right? Involved in the community, but not of the world. We're not to be changed by it. We're not to assimilate ourselves completely. And I just want to share a couple couple scriptures here before we end that, that came to mind when thinking about this. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 uh, through 15. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we're to submit for the Lord's sake. And by doing so, we may silence the ignorant, foolish man. Romans 13 has a similar sentiment, submitting to the authority of the government. Um, you know, Just as verse 7 of chapter 29 here says that they are to even petition the Lord on their behalf, prayer is a really big part of our responsibility and a big part of how we live in a foreign land like this. And I, and I thought about 1 Timothy chapter 2. Where it says, first of all, then, I I urge that that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Obviously, like again, we're not to assimilate completely into the Lord, forgetting our identity and who we belong to. But God places a heavy emphasis on how his people are to conduct themselves, and how they're to interact with the world around them. They're not to... To rebel, they're not to be conspiratorial. Seek they're not to seek revenge or harm. They're not to be combative. Instead, they're to seek peaceful, quiet lives. Seek the welfare of the city. Uh, in it, in the welfare of the city, we find our welfare. And I and I can't help but think of the protection you know our military provides and the free country we live in and things like that. When when our city uh, does well, when our when our nation does well, we do well. And this is one of the ways that God takes care of our needs. And, and, and we do this through prayer for our leaders as well. All of these things are ways for us to glorify God and be a reflection of him in the community. And if we don't follow that pattern they laid out for the Jewish exiles, we see, and that we see in the New Testament, it'll be hard to silence the foolish, ignorant man who may be following the false teachers and prophets of our day. Um, it, it'll be different difficult to turn them to God if we are combative and we are uh, not uh, not living peacefully and not not living in the community as God uh, instructs us to so that's our class this week I know I've gone along this is the longest class we've had uh, I've tried to keep them uh, under uh, around 40 minutes but that didn't happen this this week and, and I apologize for that it was a lot of material it covered about five chapters um, as always, if you have any questions or comments, please uh, about anything that we we've talked about, please reach out to Brian or, or myself. Um, you know I've received a few encouraging comments and, and some thoughts that I hadn't even considered from some of you already this quarter, and I appreciate those texts and, and, and emails. That's always one of the most encouraging parts of our Bible study when we're together is learning from, from each other and learning learning from others, so, so I appreciate those thoughts. Um, again, don't forget to explore our website. We ha- uh, have sermons, Bible classes, articles, song worship recordings, all sorts of stuff at org. I encourage you to go check out some of those other resources. Um, and if you like to listen to podcasts, like Brian mentioned last week, we do have a podcast feed now where you can download our material straight to your, your mobile device and listen uh, on the go. Lord willing, Brian will be leading next week's study covering Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33. So we hope you'll join us then. Please come back. Until then, thanks for watching and take care.